I wasn't lying when I said this could be your only moment for stillness and quiet this week. I just didn't know the Hell's Angels had planned breakfast at Harbor House this morning. (laughs) There's something manly about the rumble of a big motorcycle, isn't there? It's like they drive down the road growling at each other and other motorists. um, uh, I don't know. It just seems like a manly expression. (laughs) Oh. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And no, this is not a series. Um, It's not the second in a series. I don't know what I'm going to do next. So I'm just taking uh, meditations from my week and talking about them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This last week I found myself in a conversation with a young woman. And afterwards I was left with this impression of her, her sincerity, her, her love for God, and her uh, compassion for others. She had been trying to communicate her faith to her roommates. And at first they were interested and they listened to her. Uh, But certain things that she said uh, got them to object and then she uh, said they stopped listening. So she warned them that we're living in the end times. The world will soon come to an end and if they don't believe in Jesus, they'll go to hell. And there was no more talk after that. <laughs> it, it pretty much stopped. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> to her credit, I have to say that when I suggested to her an alternative, she was very open to it. She was ready to hear it and uh, listened very politely. She explained that she was just a new Christian and you know, hadn't really figured all this stuff out yet. I could point to her Christians who are 80 years old and haven't figured it out yet. But why do we drift from the essentials to the esoteric or or to a defensive position where we have to argue against evolution or something like that? I think that we're naturally drawn to subjects that are either fearful or fascinating. It's like, oh, that really scares me. Could you please keep talking about it, Um, or the fascinating. um, And fascination may hold someone's attention. Uh, Did the Bible really say that? And is it really happening in today's headlines? And fear may get a person to change a behavior, but neither one do anything to make changes on the inside. Love, however, rewrites our whole inner life. And we'll do for, for love what even fear can't get us to do. The most compelling reason for anyone to listen to you is if they are convinced that you love them. And the most persuasive tool you have is your own story. And if you just stick to that, you're going to be okay. 
And um, however people respond, it's not up to you. But if you love them and you tell your story, you've, you've done well. Paul begins this letter to his protege in the usual way. First, who the letter is from, and then to whom the letter is sent. And God and Jesus are on, on both sides of this correspondence, from the sender and uh, with the receiver. And um, on Paul's side, he's an apostle, uh, which we know something about, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the commandment of God. And, and commandment here implies both a duty and an authority. You know, God told me to do this, so not only do I have to do it, but I do it with God's uh, imprimatur. And here, in this first verse, uh, he refers to God as our Savior and Christ Jesus as our hope. Then Timothy, on his side, uh, God's there too, he's his true or genuine child in faith, and he gets grace, mercy, and peace. And here, he refers to God as our Father and Christ Jesus as our Lord. So he, he changes things up a bit. Um, not that Jesus is particularly Timothy's Lord and not Paul's, or that God is particularly Timothy's Father, um, but he's something else to Paul. Um, I think that he changes it up just to enrich the dimensions of all that God and Jesus are to us. Uh, that it's never one-dimensional. And some of these, these descriptives are interchangeable. Now, before we jump to Paul's first topic that he addresses, let's just pause and notice that we're going to make better spiritual progress and fewer mistakes if we have a stable, godly, and gifted mentor. And that's what Paul is to Timothy. He's his mentor, his, his spiritual director, as it were. And, and Timothy, I'm sure, flourishes with this wise old man's advice. All right, now we can get into the substance of this letter. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Have you ever noticed Paul writes in very long sentences? How can you even follow this stuff? Anyway, we'll try. Um, okay, there were certain problems in Ephesus that needed to be resolved. And that's why Paul left Timothy behind there when he went on to Macedonia. And he left him with specific instructions. Now, a careful study of Ephesus reveals the nature of these issues that have to be dealt with. Um, they were deeply embedded in the culture. Uh, if you read Acts chapter 19, there's this big to-do uh, over Paul's ministry because there are craftsmen in Ephesus who make money by selling replicas 
of the Temple to Artemis. The Temple to Artemis was famous throughout the Greek and Roman worlds. It was a very important temple, and Ephesus was known as the guardian of the temple. In fact, coins dating back to that time have been uncovered um, that have that inscription on them. Ephesus, the guardian of the temple. So th this was a status for them, a status and a, and a source of pride and privilege. So when Paul is preaching that the true God cannot be replicated with idols um, and, and talismans and so on, uh, this disrupted, at least the, the artisans felt it disrupted their business. And so they, they go on strike, they go through the city yelling and shouting, people start leaving their shops and their homes, they follow them to the outdoor theater, and there for several hours they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul wants to talk to him, but his friends won't let him because uh, they, they fear that they'll tear him apart. So again, we can imagine that um, it would take time to help the believers who have been enculturated in Ephesus to break free from some of its, its myth and heritage and to begin thinking different thoughts. Timothy's job was to instruct certain men, uh, and specifically teachers. The word instruct can be uh, translated command, or uh, commission, or uh, assignment, right? Um, I, you know, I guess I just don't like to be commanded. You know what I mean? I, I, um, and when we have this impression of God already that He's, he's this infinite commander who comes up with all these commands and we just have to do them. It, it all seems kind of arbitrary and autocratic. So I, I always look for alternatives. And so God, um, God gives us assignments. He commissions us to certain things. And whatever he commissions us to do, he, he supplies us the ability to do it. In this instance, the assignment is what they're not to teach rather than what they're supposed to teach. They're not to teach strange doctrines. Teach strange doctrines translates one Greek word. It's a complicated word, but just one Greek word. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, I'm surprised that you are so moved to another gospel, which is not really another I'm surprised that you're going after another Jesus, and it's not really another. How can it be another and not another? Well, if you're reading Greek, you find that another translates two different words. Uh, another can be allos, A-L-L-O-S, which means another of the same kind. Or heteros, hmm, that sounds familiar, which means another of a different kind. So, it's another gospel, but not another of the same kind. This is different. Well, heteros is part of this compound word, and literally it's another teaching of a different kind. 
but it's just two words. Uh, another teaching, but another teaching that's different. It's not the same kind as Paul's teaching. Huh. Uh, I just want to read you something. This is a little bit gnarly, but in um, the last chapter of 1 Timothy, um, Paul says, oh boy. He talks about people who advocate a different doctrine, same Greek word. Uh, different, you know, not of the same kind teaching. Whoever teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine concerning, or pardon me, conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Uh, I think it's best I not comment on that. Paul is saying, not only don't teach this stuff, don't even pay attention to it. Um, we're supposed to be paying attention. I mean, that's part of what our, our spiritual practice is all about. Jesus emphasized this to the disciples. In fact, he explained to them, this is a way to avoid danger if you pay careful attention. And he told them to, using the same Greek word, be aware or beware of the more religious people in the community because it's easy to think they've got it all together when really they're very messed up. I met a... a a Muslim one time who explained to me that, that much of Muslim thinking is that the militant Muslim is the true Muslim. They're the ones who are really following the teachings of the Quran and of Muhammad. That was his opinion. That's, that was his read. Um, and a lot of Christians think that the fundamentalist is the true Christian, um, the, the militant Believer who's already always ready to put up a fight, but Jesus is saying, "Beware of these people," and Paul is echoing that. We can we can waste this skill of paying attention by paying attention to the wrong things, and Paul says, "Don't waste your time paying attention to the wrong things." And he cites two general distractions, not so much for us, but. For the Ephesians, we have our own distractions. He says, um, don't pay attention to, to myths. Well, the ancient Greeks are famous for their myths. And their myths were told in stories by storytellers and poetry by poets in, in stage plays and uh, also by philosophers. In fact, uh, one time I was talking to my little sister about the difference between Plato and Aristotle in their influence on early Christian theology. And she looked sort of disgusted and she said, well, I don't see how anyone can talk about Plato without mentioning his, his epistemology of the myth of the cave. 
And I had to agree with her because I did not know what she was talking about. <laughs> but uh, Plato's uh, myth of the cave is, is, is well, in, if you take a first-year philosophy class, you're going to learn about it. Uh, it's fairly important in Greek thinking and in laying out the essence of Socrates' teaching and Plato's thoughts. Um, so even there, even in philosophy, myth plays an important role. Uh, the influence of myth in Ephesus was powerful. You know that, that the Roman Catholic Church, even under Constantine, could not dislodge the Ephesian devotion to Artemis. So what they did is they translated that devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Clever. And um, it was in Ephesus that one of the early church councils declared Mary to be the Theotokos, the mother of God. So um, if you can't beat them, <laughs> give them something else. Uh, myths and endless genealogies. Endless genealogies. Every genealogy in the Bible seems endless to me. Uh, I mean, if you read the first nine chapters of uh, First Chronicles, it's one genealogy after another. All these names that you know are so strange and don't even try to pronounce them. Um, but Jewish mysticism produced fanciful interpretations uh, of the genealogies and made uh, their beliefs out of them or fortified their beliefs from what they found in the genealogies. Sometimes it was just a matter of numerology. Sometimes it was a matter of how they interpreted the names. Which, by the way, this goes on today. I've heard contemporary preachers talk about the message of the genealogies, that if you take all the names in order, you get this this spiritual revelation. You haven't heard that? Okay. When did you stop going to CBC? Okay. I mean, you know, it, it's been a while, but... Um, okay. Uh, and, and I'll just say this about that. It, it reveals a preacher's cleverness much more than any revelation of Scripture. In other words, it's not telling us something the Scripture's trying to communicate. It's just how clever can you be and what you do with the names that are there. And many of them, no one knows what they mean. You know, an honest uh, exegete or, or commentator will tell you that. Anyway, what did these different teachings produce? Uh, Paul says, mere speculations. More questions and controversies. And uh, nothing to do with the administration of God. Administration uh, sounds like a management word. And I think that it is because in the King James, this is usually translated stewardship. And a, you know, steward was responsible to manage a household. Generally, the uh, premier slave in a Roman home and was accorded all kinds of liberty and freedom because everything was entrusted to, to him. You know, purchases for the house, for the children, for you know, whatever was needed. He administrated not only the funds, but the other servants and all the household activities. So everything's always done neatly and properly. 
Um, and God has given to us the stewardship of ourselves. Um, the quality of our inner life, the health of our bodies, uh, the thoughts of our mind. We have the management of all of these things. And the depth of spirit and so on. And we're supposed to be managing our lives in a way that take us deeper into faith, not into mere speculations. What does mere speculations mean? It means that all you're doing is you're having thoughts about thoughts. And since it's speculative, there's no certainty that anything you're thinking is, is real or what's worse is helpful. So in verse 5, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction, and once again, it's the same word as instruct before. It's the, it's the commission, the assignment. Goal transfra- translates the Greek word telos, uh, T-E-L-O-S. Uh, telos is, it means the end. If we talk about the end times, we're talking about telos. But in context, it's where our efforts will take us. It's the objective. Um, so the objective of our commission is first love, characterized by two qualities, pure heart and good conscience. The pure heart, this is exactly the same language Jesus used, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure heart is a total devotion to one thing. An impure heart is cluttered with lots of things or, or two, has two loyalties. Um, competing commitments, uh, Jim calls them. When I say, I really want to lose weight. I really want to eat this whole tub of ice cream. Uh, and I'm committed to losing weight and I'm committed to comfort food. So the commitments compete and I'm stuck. Well, the pure heart says one thing is needful and that's what I'm going to do. It's always that, that one thing. It's about one thing. The good conscience, I want to come back to in just a minute. Um, so it's love and it's faith. And what he says about faith is it has to be sincere. It's characterized by sincerity. And um, the word translated sincerity is literally no hypocrisy. We're not hiding anything. We're not wearing any masks. We're transparent. Then the last two verses that we want to look at this morning, verses 6 and 7. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. What can happen if we don't stick to the basics. People begin to stray, Paul says, to wander, to go off course. But that's just the first stage. Uh, We lose our anchor. The second stage is to turn aside. So you go from wandering to saying, well, I choose this other way. They prefer the exotic or the (coughs) intriguing speculations to the boring old truth that we all know. Oh, the Ten Commandments again, please. Um, 
But you know, there's a difference between uh, something that's really foundational and building <coughs> castles in the air. And what they're going after is the castle in the air. Now, now that's all they're interested in hearing about, all they're interested in discussing. I'm sorry, you guys. I am so prejudiced this morning, and, I, and I'm trying to be good about this. But um, <sighs> when you hear people talking about the end of the world, and the Bible says this, and the Bible says that, so much of that is hogwash. And I'm not saying the world's not going to come to an end, or, or you know, Jesus isn't going to return, and, and that ultimately the answer comes from outside the world. It does. I mean, that... You know, that much we know. But there's a whole lot that goes with it. That if you look at the verses that people are quoting, if you look carefully at them in their context, it's not saying what they're saying, it's saying. It's saying something else. And in context, you can never get what, what they're telling you this verse means if you, if you just know the context around it. And, and, and so their slip is showing. Uh, oh, oh, no one wears those anymore? Okay, well. <laughs> then it's not showing. I'm sorry. Um, Paul refers to these conversations as fruitless discussion or empty talk. Now, this is how I can tell that Paul really understood ministry. Typically, itinerant evangelist, and he wasn't an itinerant apostle. He was all over the globe, well, all over the, the map at that time. Um, they don't understand. They come to town, they stir up a bunch of stuff, and then they leave. And after they're gone, it's the local ministers who have to clean up after them. And they make you know, big promises about what God's going to do in a person's life, and they promise miracles, then they're gone. And when the miracles don't come, it's the, it's the pastor who has to sit down with the locals and go through life with them and, and be with them through the hard things. It, it's the pastor who doesn't get to just run off and, and hide from this stuff, make promises and split. Um, I one time told my... This, this happened not far from here, actually, um, remember the old racquetball court? I used to live by there, yeah. Um, there was a woman who came to me one Sunday morning and she said, I've got to tell you what happened to me this week. It was Wednesday night. I was working out at the club. And when I went into the parking lot, this guy attacked me. And he, and he threw me against my car and he was going to rape me. And she said, I didn't know what to do. I just started crying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She said, and he stopped, and he left me alone. And I said, that's wonderful. And I was telling, the next week I was telling my mom about this, and she said, yes, but what about the times when they cry Jesus and the person doesn't stop? Well, see, that's what the pastor has to be there for, for those hard times when it doesn't work like magic. Most of our, our lives are not magic. I mean, they are, but they aren't. 
Anyway, the minister, every topic that comes up, the minister will listen for a while, and then if it's speculative, he'll say, all right, so what? So, so what does that mean? What does that change? You, what you've just told me, how is that going to help me when I sit down with a single mom who doesn't know how she's going to make rent this month? What's that going to do for her? It's fruitless. That's why Paul describes it as, as empty or, or meaningless because you can't live it. You can't, you can't put feet on it. And so um, we don't have time. Well, we. The true minister does not have time for fruitless discussion. Too many serious, too many fires burning. Shortly after the time that Paul lived, a Stoic philosopher taught a concept of soul culture. What is culture? Uh, Well, we define culture as a group of people who live together, who share values, rules, traditions, a worldview, and so on. Or... It can be a group of people formed around shared interests or shared conditions. So we can talk about the youth culture, uh, high culture and low culture. Uh, folk cut culture, which is small groups of people, usually indigenous or ethnic. And uh, pop culture, which is mainstream uh, social trending and uh, includes media and now social media and all kinds of things. Uh, high culture is typically the arts and sciences. Um, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, a culture can also be something you grow in a Petri dish, uh, you know, which you know, makes us wonder, who's growing us anyway? Uh, and, and that begs the question, how does this, the same word relate to all these different uh, things. It can be culture in general, a culture, it can be pop culture, high culture, low culture, etc. How are the uses of, of this word connected? And it also brings us closer to what soul culture means. Culture is related to the word cultivate. Ah. High culture is cultivated by education, experience, a set of skills. Pop culture is cultivated by exposure. You learn it by watching TV, by walking through the mall. Um, You almost pick it up by accident. What Paul is talking about here is cultivating our souls. That's what we do when we love and when we have Faith, we cultivate our souls. So there have been theologians from ancient times to the present who have seen Adam in the Garden of Eden as representing a person in his or her soul. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. You have the garden of your soul to cultivate and to keep. Now, I don't want to get too carried away with this, but it goes on to say in Genesis, 
the Lord God commanded the man saying, from the tree of the garden, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. There was another special tree, the tree of life, and there's no prohibition about eating from that tree. But it's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, of course, that's the way a lot of science sees Christianity. It's like you, you, you oppose knowledge. Uh, you, you persecuted Galileo or you know, whatever it's a story they like to bring up. But, um, of course, all we need is for someone to tell us, don't do that, and we're going to do it. Um, and didn't the serpent promise enlightenment? Didn't he say, there are mysteries that God's keeping from you that are so easy to get to. You just have to open the door, just lift the lid. And such things have always piqued human curiosity. What is the hidden truth? What is the secret? I, I know I've said this before. I forgive me. Forgive me for this quote, but again, I'm talking about my favorite family in America, only this time it's Police Chief Wiggums who um, catches his son, Ralph and, and Bart Simpson, in his, in his armory that he keeps at home in a closet. I, I think there might even be police tape across the door, but uh, they've gotten into it, and he says to them, you know you're not supposed to go in there. What is your fascination with my forbidden closet of mystery. <laughs> you know, uh, say the laundry hamper is in there, they'll never open the door. And their socks will still be on the floor. And so I wanted to come back to verse 5 where Paul mentions a good conscience. Uh, Ralph Earl explains that among the Greeks, this word meant self-consciousness, which was primarily an intellectual matter. It was the Jews, along with the Stoics, who introduced a moral content to the term so that consciousness became conscience. Well, um, okay, I can, I can get that, that connection. Uh, cultivating this good consciousness will lead us to fruitful discussions, not unfruitful discussions. Don't you enjoy talking to people of depth? I do. I mean, um, and I enjoy fruitful discussions. You know, my introversion makes it very difficult for me to engage in chit-chat, in, um, in, in greetings. Uh, my psychiatrist explained it like this one time. He said, Chuck, he said, I picture you after a church service. This is when I had a church. He said, I picture you after church service greeting people and someone asks you a question and inside your head you think, well, if I answer this way, they may say this. If I answer that way, they may say that. And if they say that, I'll get defensive and I'll have to say this. And the whole time they're standing there waiting for an answer and finally they just assume, oh, he's not going to answer me. And they walk off. And I say, phew. <laughs> and and I ask my, my psychiatrist, how do you know me so well? 
you know, it's like, it's like you're there, you're spying on me. That's exactly how it goes. I play this chess game in my head. Of, you know, um, but if I'm asked a question of depth, I'll give you a dissertation. You know, you get a seat, relax, grab a cup of tea. You're going to be here for a while. Cultivating love and faith are going to lead to fruitful discussions. Paying attention and love from a good consciousness will give us new ways to see. I remember the first time I was handed a magnifying glass, and it was so interesting how it changed things. And I wanted to look at everything through it. I went around looking at rocks and blades of grass and anything that I can find and and hold still long enough uh, because I'm seeing this new world, the the world of close-up, the world of magnification. And it 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 was so interesting. Well, the same thing happens with us as we as we develop this spiritual consciousness, as we pay attention, as we sit in silence, as we become uh, mindfully aware. Jesus soils parable. Remember them? You know, there's four types of soil, and the seed lands on all four, and there's only one soil where it grows and produces a crop. What are we going to weed? out of the garden of our soul? And what are we going to plant? What are we going to encourage? What will we discourage? There's no day of our lives that cannot turn up opportunities to move forward in our spiritual journey. Okay, that's a little bit complicated, but I'll let it sink in. I can say it this way, every day will present us opportunities to take a step forward, to look at something else under the magnifying glass, to see differently, to experience differently, and to respond in new ways. It will give us opportunities to break old habits and wire new synapses between neurons to become new persons, more spiritually cultivated. I really don't care if you can stand next to me and together we're looking at a Jackson Pollock painting and you can tell me what it means and its significance and, and all about the life of Pollock, I, I really don't care about that kind of cultivation. I will admire you, respect you, I want to keep my distance, but <laughs> I don't care. But your spiritual cultivation is why I live. So... The ongoing cultivation of the garden of our souls is going to give us new eyes to see and lives to live that are more true to who we really are. Would you stand with me, please? If you were dragged here today by someone who loves you... (laughs) (laughs) Forgive them. If I didn't have to speak today, I wouldn't be here. Um, Is this too hot? In the meantime, may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.